Welcome to episode 18 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Let's look at Claudette Colbert in Midnight from 1939. Midnight was directed by Mitchell Lyson, written by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder, and co-stars Mary Astor, Don Amici, and John Barrymore. A Google search on the film will bring you to that secret Russian website I've told you about with ok.ru in the URL, and you can watch it there. During my doctoral program, I studied the Irish language for two semesters. I recall my lecturer saying that when she lived in the Geltacht, the community of Galgors or Irish speakers, she learned not to use the singular form of potato, which is prata. The logic behind it is, it would be unthinkable to ever have one potato. What would you do with a single potato? You would always need more than one. Hence, use the plural form for potato, which is prati. I feel the same way about quarines. It seems unthinkable to talk about an individual woman of the chorus. They always traveled in pairs, if not groups. Quarines should always be used in the plural form. If the cinema of the 1930s and women's pictures in particular have told us anything as viewers, it's that the path to the stage is the quickest route to independence and social mobility outside sex work. For instance, every Busby Berkeley production has argued for the benefits to be found in the society of quarines. 42nd Street, Footlight Parade, Dames, and especially the Gold Digger franchise from 1933, 35, 37, and 38. Additional films from the 30s operated with the same logic that quarines stick together. Broadway Bad, Dancing Lady, Havana Widows, Artists and Models, and Stage Door, to name a few more, are pictures that celebrate sorority among high steppers. Everything and everyone gels perfectly in Midnight, Except were I to make a complaint, it would be that Claudette Colbert should have had an accomplice from the stage. Already we see the beginning of the 1940s trend to scale down the number of women in a production and make women's relationships with men more important than their friendships with each other. But that's a minor quibble about this exceptional film. Bracken Wilder crafted modern updates for classic fairy tales. Here they have a go at Cinderella. And then later, in 1941, they tackled Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs with Barbara Stanwyck in Ball of Fire. The modern updates dispense with the need for a wicked stepmother or stepsisters. Instead, we have a showgirl down on her luck, trying to sleep on a hard wooden bench in a third-class rail car. Claudette Colbert has nowhere to go but up. With the help of a taxi driver and a rich fairy godfather, she, she can realize the dream of trying to get somewhere. In her first encounter with a railway worker who wakes her up to say they've arrived in Paris, she struggles to rouse herself. Claudette wears a fabulous gold gown with a hood, but it's hardly suited to the bleak weather. We know it's cold because the men who pass by the train car have their collars turned up. The porter tries to be gallant and asks if he can get her her luggage. I wish you would, she replies. He looks around the empty car and asks where it is. Municipal pawn shop in Monte Carlo, she says. Claudette is is broke, without a place to stay or any resources, but she's not downcast or maudlin about it. She has a cheerful, let's see what happens demeanor that's admirable. Outside the train station, when she's trying to rally, Don Amici approaches and asks if she wants a taxi. She tells him no, but he's fairly persistent. 
Claudette stops for a moment and does this thing where she wipes the corner of her mouth with a finger. The small gesture speaks volumes. She's bemused, weighing options. The move says she could make a meal of him if he sucker enough to let her. It's telling, a moment that reveals how quick she must be to size up a situation to turn it to her advantage. She's wondering how deep his pockets are, and it shows. In that moment, she's the lion and he's the lamb. She may be down on her luck, but her situation isn't tragic if she keeps her wits. A woman alone, in a glamorous yet impractical gown, in the pouring rain, with no luggage and no money, suggests a bounty of possibility. Viewers know that Colbert's character Eve Peabody is an optimist because in Bucketing Rain, she spends her last 25 centime on a newspaper to put over her head. She illustrates the belief that any protection from the elements, no matter how meager, proves a better course of action than simply giving in to a downpour. The broadsheet chapeau tells an audience she'll pull through. Don Amici had been prepared to dismiss her offer to double cab fare and add a generous tip if he would drive her around to look for work. But when he sees her try to dodge the raindrops, he tosses his apple away and opens up his taxi chariot. Claudette decides to upgrade her skill set from quarrying to headlining act as she auditions in a song in nightclubs all over town. She has nothing to go on but her brass neck. When turned down at the last one, a tiny dive, she admits that hers is strictly a bathtub voice. Don Amici's Tibor Cherny tries to console her by buying her dinner. At first she declines, saying, you lost a gamble, you don't have to feed it. He insists. She tells him a little bit about herself. She admits with total candor that her plan was to land a rich man. She left New York for a gig dancing in London. She figured it was best, the best way to meet a money bags. In the cafe, she tells him, I landed a lord almost. Almost, he says. Well, the family came between us. His mother came to my hotel and offered me a bribe. You threw her out, I hope. How could I, with my hands full of money? Being a gold digger suits Colbert as a refreshing change of pace. She's so frank about her monetary designs that it's not only sympathetic, it's downright laudatory. She wants a good life, and the way to get one is through the right man. Mercenary women always look better in a gold dress. It's sincere. It's as forthright as the light or flag on a taxi cab that says it's open for fares. They're great in the cafe scene because Tibor hangs on her every word. Men who really listen are always heroes in women's pictures. When he talks about himself, it's to say that he has all that he needs, 40 francs a day, and that if you want peace of mind, to get a taxi. Eve Peabody puts the brakes on his invitation. She says no woman ever found peace in a taxi cab. I'm looking for a limousine. She spent enough time on the Bronx subway before she decided to gamble and try and get somewhere. She summarizes her aspirations thusly. It took me years to figure out that you don't fall into a tub of butter. You jump for it. Who cares about romantic ideals when you have one dress to your name and only a pawn ticket in your purse? She's gambling on a lot more than a roulette wheel. Eve jumps for that tub of butter when she rejects Tibor's invitation to sleep in his room while he's driving the cab. Tibor, no doubt, only had margarine in his fridge. To shake him off, she ducks into a fancy party. When she sees the queue of rich folks turning in invitation cards at the door, she brazenly hands over her pawn ticket. She finds a seat next to wily old goat John Barrymore, a man who can outact most people just by waggling his eyebrows. 
Hedda Hopper plays the hostess, who seems more interested in bossing her guests around than the musicians she has lined up for entertainment. She interrupts one pianist to complain about the gatecrasher. The society party seems dull. Everyone has pained expressions on a listless crowd that seem to be exhibiting tolerance more than enjoyment. Nobody seems to be having any fun until the search for the party crasher animates the society folk. As George Flammarion, Jack Barrymore watches Claudette Colbert with laser-grade intensity. He knows she's the interloper as soon as she slips off one shoe. It's a telltale sign of a tired woman on the run rather than just some heels that pinch. He gawps at the way she sinks into the chair as though putting down anchor. He also notices how much Eve Peabody annoys his wife, Helena, played by Mary Astor. God, Mary Astor always plays an exquisite bitch. Helena is the woman at any social gathering who prefers the company of men and will freeze out any woman who tries to break up her claim to a monopoly on male attention. She can barely bring herself to look at Claudette, especially when the woman in the gold dress captivates her lover. Sat next to Mary Astor, Francis Letterer, plays Jacques Picot, a man who may as well have skirt chaser emblazoned on his forehead. Barrymore plays a man so consumed by jealousy at being cuckolded by a man who isn't half worthy of his wife that he hatches a plot. Georges doesn't wait to ask Eve Peabody if she wants to pretend to be married to a Hungarian aristocrat. Once he has confirmation that she's a fraud, that she didn't know when the subway was finished in Budapest, he susses out that she has no other option than to play along with his ruse. Barrymore stuffs her evening clutch full of banknotes to oil up her willingness to go along with his plan. Once she pays off the debt she amassed at the card table, she finds herself grabbing for Tibor's surname when asked for her own, and then Barrymore bestows her title Baroness. At the end of the evening, long after the clock has struck midnight, she doesn't lose her slipper or have the fairy tale evaporate. On the contrary, it's just beginning. In a suite at the Ritz, which Barrymore had secured in her name, she awakens the next morning in the buff. A lady with only one dress can't afford to sleep in it. The front desk rings to announce that her luggage has arrived. Naturally, Eve's confused, assuming they mean her shabby bag back in Monte Carlo. This modern Cinderella has one of the best wish fulfillments in cinema history. Instead of a glass slipper or a poofy ball gown, Claudette's Eve Peabody clutches the blanket over her chest as burly men wheel in a massive trunk and three suitcases. Once the trunks open, she looks at the array of clothes hanging and requests a fringed dressing gown. Stifling a blush, she asks the porter to drape it over the bed. We won't see a naked woman in bed again until Gloria Graham appeared starkers under the blankets for In a Lonely Place from 1950. In a way, Claudette's version holds more shock value because she's surrounded by strange men who might assume her state of undress was an invitation. Once she's dressed, Barrymore shows up looking more like the devil than her fairy godfather. Even his hair looks hungover. The pact he wants to make doesn't ask for her immortal soul, though. He wants her to draw Jacques away from his wife, and in return she'll get to live like a baroness. There's no real tension between George and Eve, which is a bit odd. He picked out all those clothes for her, an act that expresses a level of intimacy few men are capable of. But he only has eyes for Mary Astor's Helena. 
Immediately after he leaves with her accepting the contract, she rushes off to the best hat shop in town. There's no time to waste in looking the part. The scene in Simone's hat shop rates as one of my all-time favorites. It has everything, style, chicanery, bitchiness, and it demonstrates the genius of Mitchell Lyson. He designed fantastic sets and, and created, if not curated, outstanding costumes and accessories. Cedric Gibbons may be considered the master, but his interiors often felt cold, inhospitality, and that removed from the people who were supposed to be living in them. Mitch's sets always turned the characters and the plot up a notch. In the hat shop, a statue of a seated woman, legs stretched out, gazing into a mirror, dominates the entrance. Although she wears a classical Grecian chiton gown, Lyson has modernized the figure from Mount Olympus. The statue of a goddess wears a jaunty hat perched on one side, adorned with a pair of wings that swoosh out from the side as though taken directly from Mercury's shoes and put in service of style. Simone's hat on the statue is just one of many that are utterly striking and original. When we first see Elaine Barry as Simone at Hedda Hopper's party that Claudette crashes, she's wearing a stark white hat that looks like a still life of cockatiels fighting or mating. The wings are fat but somehow also pointed and appear ready to strike. You can't take your eyes from it. Also during that party scene, Mary Astor tries to distract Francis Letterer from flirting with Claudette Colbert. She asks him to accompany her to Simone's the next day. She says with a proprietary claim, as sure as a stamp of lip rouge on his cheek, that she wouldn't dream of buying another hat that he didn't approve of. He takes his eyes off Claudette long enough to offer a withering review of Astor's hat as looking like a feather duster. Jacques announces, I'm against feathers, as if his opinion matters. Jacques' comment instantly turns him into a heel. No man should ever mock the woman he's sleeping with in public, especially a married one. And Simone's hat is divine, so his taste matters not. No one else but Mitch Lyson could have devised hats and accessories that are so bold, bonkers, and completely apt for the high-toned grifter that Elaine Barry plays. I would pay through the nose, shave my head, and subsist on dry toast for a month for the gigantic centipede brooch that Elaine Barry wears to greet customers. It looks as vicious as the barbs Mary Astor and Claudette Colbert exchange in the hat shop. Simone may not have the power of a society name, but she has total authority to announce good style, and so really she's the most important person in the room. Simone wreaks a little class havoc by charging exorbitant sums for hats that have a short shelf life in the style calendar. Simone's hats begin to depreciate as soon as they are placed on a woman's head. When she slates a customer's hat, the woman complains that she bought it from Simone three days ago. Without missing a beat, Simone says that it doesn't matter. She's decided that all hats should now be worn away from the face. Simone rules the society matrons with an iron fist because their greatest fear, aside from a worker's rebellion, is being ruled out of style. When Helena arrives with Jacques in tow, Simone tells the assistant to get the one that looks like it has spinach on it. Wearing the spinach hat, a pillbox base decorated with sprigs that do indeed look like spinach or maybe clover, Astor remains seated next to her lover when Claudette approaches. 
Claudette's Eve Peabody doesn't take the obvious bait and insult a hat that has more reach than a circus trapeze artist. Instead, she goes for a more cutting remark and quips that she likes the hat. It gives her a certain something. It gives her a chin. Claudette could not have issued a stronger declaration of war had she slapped Mary across the cheek and stomped on her hat. Mary Astor has a glare imbued with so much fiery contempt that it could melt marble. She does what any obscenely wealthy woman would do and doesn't object when told that her husband had invited the countess to their country house. Naturally, she'll want the opportunity to vanquish her opponent on her own territory and publicly for maximum effect. Each time they meet, Claudette maintains a light mood, offhand, cheerful, which deflects the hostility radiating from Mary Astor. She takes the best strategy for dealing with a scorned woman. Act like you don't notice. Mary Astor receives much acclaim for the demented, avaricious Bridget O'Shaughnessy she played in Maltese Falcon. But she's just as self-involved and conniving at midnight and far more lethal. Bridget gets hauled off to the gallows, but Helena could have the entire guest list buried in the garden and no one would blink. Mary Astor was pregnant at the time of production and had a belly that needed camouflage. They did the usual tricks of filming her seated at a table, positioned behind buffet chafing dishes, and shooting her from behind on the dance floor. The director, Mitch Lyson, worked wonders with costumes, hats, and brooches to disguise her pregnancy and draw the eye upwards towards her face and away from her belly. Astor was solicitous with Barrymore on set. Barrymore was Mary Astor's first lover when she was only a teenager. Elaine Barry was married to Barrymore during production. Mitch Lyson said in an interview that Elaine was hired on to keep Barrymore in line. Even with minders, Barrymore needed what they called idiot cards printed with his lines because he refused to memorize them. Lyson said Barrymore urinated all over the set, and one day he stumbled into the powder room. When a woman objected, but this is for ladies, Barrymore flashed her and said, so is this. Charles Brackett referred to Don Amici as extraordinarily naive for an actor after he blushed at some bawdy comment Barrymore made one day. But he has never been better on screen, perhaps because his character moves heaven and earth to find Eve Peabody once she rejects his offer for shelter and disappears into the night. His character Tibor offers a reward for the cab driver who finds her. Each driver chips into a pot and the winner takes all. His mustache game is strong, and because he's so smitten with her, even when she's honest about her dreams, he can get away with bossing her around a little bit. A script always shines when the woman plays the cynical realist and the man holds tight to romantic ideals, as with Claudette as the former Corrine and Don Amici as the taxi driver who decides she has her priorities all mixed up. In his diary, screenwriter Charles Brackett logged complaints about the original script, he bounced back and forth every day like a ping-pong ball between Mitch Lyson and producer Arthur Hornblow. The men frequently disagreed about what was funny or good. Brackett was in a near-continuous row with Billy Wilder during work on the script. In his diary entries, just the name of Wilder occasions rising tension. Mitch Lyson, in interviews conducted with David Chirochetti, also reported that in the daily script meetings, he most often clashed with Wilder. 
He said Wilder was resistant to developing emotional consistency for the characters and their actions. Having undergone eight years of psychoanalysis, Lyson looked for patterns of behavior that made sense. He said Wilder couldn't get this, but that Brackett did, and he praised Brackett as a leveling influence who would referee the arguments with Wilder. Colbert refused to do the picture until the studio demanded that she do it or else forfeit her picture deal. While they waited for the final word, someone suggested Myrna Loy and William Powell for the leads. Then Brackett wrote that after Claudette had accepted the assignment, she rang the studio to say that she needed three of her teeth fixed before the picture started. Executives responded that her delay would cost the studio $17,000. Claudette arrived with a statement from her dentist and won the delay. I'll close the episode with an excerpt from Mary Astor's memoir, A Life on Film, published in 1971. Without a doubt, she was one of the best writers from the classic Hollywood generation. Grab a copy if you can. There was enough time before the year ended for me to do one picture, and then I was going to have to quit for a while. I had married again to Manuel Del Campo, one of the young men of Ruth Chatterton's salon of admirers, and I was having a baby. The picture was delayed for story reasons, which made me pretty nervous. Claudette Colbert was the star, and she had story approval rights. Stars who had those rights liked to exercise them, not necessarily to the story's advantage. In Claudette's case, she saw to it that the story focused on her at all times. Claudette was a star and had many limitations. She was pretty rather than beautiful. She had some difficult angles to her face, not as difficult as she thought, but every close-up had to be shot showing only the left three-quarters of her face. The right side of her face was called the other side of the moon because nobody ever saw it. She was a good comedian, and she herself was bright and witty. At midnight, she surrounded herself with good people, Don Amici, well, Francis Lederer, Rex O'Malley, Monty Woolley, and John Barrymore, and his new wife, Elaine Barry. The delay on the picture worried both me and the wardrobe department. My waistline was getting thick. The clothes were those of a rich woman, so Edith had saw to it that I was enveloped in furs, or I was seated behind a bridge table, or presiding at the luncheon. I was also supposed to lead a conga line at, at a big party, but we fixed it in the story so that I had to be called away to the telephone. Seeing Jack again, working with him, was saddening. He was so changed. He was sick and old, only in his 50s, and he had been through some events in connection with Miss Barry that had made the country laugh at him. He was vague and quiet on the set and barely talking to anyone. For most of the scenes, he required prompt cards carried off-camera by the prop man. This in itself at the time was considered a subject for sniggering. The old boys lost his marbles. Of course, later, TV developed cue cards and teleprompters to a fine art. But even with the cue cards and only a faint idea of what the picture was all about, he had enough years of experience behind him to be able to act rings around anyone else. I played his wife in the picture, and we had a few scenes together. It was all very strange. He hardly spoke to me on the set, politely and personally. Once, we were sitting off camera in the usual canvas chairs waiting to be called. Saying nothing, I reached over and touched his hand gently, because I was remembering another time so very long ago. 
He snatched his hand away as though it had been burned, and he glared at me and said, Don't. Tears came weakly to his eyes, and he fisted them away and laughed and said, My wife, uh, Miss Barry, is very jealous. I saw him only once again, a few years later, when he was doing a weekly radio show in which he permitted Rudy Valley to make a clown of him. I was doing a Lux Theater or something that immediately followed his show. I was on the second floor of the building where the dressing rooms were, a long, bleak, fluorescent lighted hall. There was no one else around, and I saw him walking down the hall alone ahead of me. I wanted to catch up and say hello, but I didn't. He had stopped, like someone who just couldn't walk another step. He leaned against the wall in sheer fatigue. His body sagged. It was no time to intrude, so I retraced my steps. I couldn't help thinking, where was everybody? Where were the valets, the little train of admiring hangers-on, the designers with drawings to be approved, secretaries with a sheaf of letters to be signed? I hated all the Barrymore jokes, the sick ones, the dirty ones. I hated the people who said, I was with Jack in a bar one night, ready to recount a wild story. This was a giant of a man, one of the few greats of our time. He was a man with enormous dignity, and he never lost it. He occasionally threw it away for his own reasons, but that was his business. And now, in that long, bleak hall, I saw a man who was catching his breath before doing battle, and quite a battle it was, with death. My scenes at midnight were finally telescoped into a few days' work. It was all getting to be too much of a problem, and I retired for a few months to enjoy idleness, to lie in the sun, to prepare my little daughter for the new baby. I could read to be content, relieved of the stress and pressure of picture-making. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time for episode 19 when I talk about Mayo Method in Vanity Street from 1932. I got an island in the Pacific And everything about it is terrific I got the sun to take